Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you're with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck Toll Free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Much to discuss today, my friends, an honor and a privilege, as always, to have you hanging out with me. Thank you so much uh, for giving me your time. Uh, we have the phones open, 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK, because I'm, I'm Buck. And uh, we also have some great guests joining today, Matt Walsh of The Blaze, Fred Flights, uh, national security expert, uh, Michael Goodwin from The New York Post to talk about all things Trump-tastic and Trumptopia. Uh, we've got a lot to get into there. And in terms of topics, um, I can promise you that we will be very light on on Russia talk. Some of you yesterday expressed displeasure that I got into a little bit of the process, the legal processes right now with the Russia investigation. We're going to be very light on that. We got a lot of other things to discuss, including uh, the latest, of course, on healthcare, Obamacare, uh, a, a fake news, a fake news instance of the second Trump meeting at the G20 summit. I was very pleased to see Walter Russell Mead's article at the uh, Wall Street Journal. And it was after I had come on this show and said more or less the same thing, although I'm not saying that it was similar in terms of the specifics, but just the overall that the G20 is a giant affair of nonsense and camera ops and it's a waste of time and nothing happens and and most of these big global summits are an excuse for world leaders to look like leaders and do nothing uh, they're really the the height of international uh, bureau, uh bureaucracy and bureaucratism and i just uh, do not have a, a whole I uh, don't have very much respect for them. And he wrote the same thing in the Wall Street Journal. I worked at the Council on Foreign Relations uh, as an intern, as a very uh, elite fetcher of coffee uh, and doing some some research, too, when Walter was there. He was actually one of my favorite scholars at CFR. CFR does very good work. Those of you who ask me sometimes for background information on some of the uh, international and uh, national security issues that we talk about on the show. If you want to do your own deep dives in your own time, if you want, if, look, if you want to nerd out with uh, some international affairs, uh, you know, and look, I'm not, they're not like a sponsor, so I, I don't, I'm not getting any, anything out of this, uh, but CFR.org is actually a great place um, for all of that. They've got it broken down by issue and events and, uh, or issue and topic region. So just a, uh, Let's get back into our topics here. Uh, we have Obamacare, the fake news at the G20, Asada, uh, Asada Shakur, and Linda Sarsour, unrelated topics. But we'll get into both of those issues. Uh, voter fraud, uh, or uh, yeah, voter fraud. Uh, we'll talk about that. And what else do we have? Oh, and civil asset forfeiture. 
But what you'll notice today is the administration is doing something that I've been hoping would happen for a while. They're just moving forward. They're just pushing. This week is made in the uh, USA week. Uh, This is a week to highlight American businesses, but also some of the challenges that they face, which is what I've been trying to do here on the show and talk about. Uh, manufacturing. You know, a very astute comment from a listener. And by the way, if you ever want to share your comments, if you don't feel like you want to call in on air or, you know, in some places the it's not possible for you to, to do it, you know, you're, if you're driving, safety first. You know, you can't call unless you've got hands free. Uh, you can always send me a message on Facebook, and I do read those. So facebook.com slash Buck Sexton to tell me whatever you think about the show. I always think it's really nice when people say, hey, you respond. I'm like, yeah, of course I responded. But somebody pointed out on the manufacturing, uh, one of my old school Team Buck listeners uh, pointed out that on manufacturing, uh, an important aspect of it as well was that you didn't need an advanced degree for a really solid high-paying job in manufacturing and that's been a, that's been part of the change too so sure you you can get a job now with a high school with a high school diploma only but most of the jobs you're going to get with only a high school diploma are going to be in the service industry maybe in retail which is facing its own problems and you're going to be making a lower wage with lesser benefits than say 30 years ago if you've been working on the Ford plant All right so that's an aspect of it that I think was uh, important to bring up as well. And maybe we'll talk more about American manufacturing and the economy and what's happening in the country uh, tomorrow. In, in terms of all that tomorrow. Uh, but for today, the administration is moving forward on their uh, the narrative, which is just different narratives from Russia collusion investigations and all that. They're digging out of the uh, the hole the media is trying to put them in. Because if they just play defense all the time, even this administration, even Donald Trump, who is a great counterpuncher, will tire himself out if he's always on defense. And as president, yes, going after the media is an important part of this game, but there has to be more. There has to be policy successes attached to all this or else what's it really worth? It's just been an interlude. And this has been... My fear, my concern all along is that we are really in the midst of if the agenda, if the Trump agenda does not get enacted in any meaningful way, which is a huge if. And I hope that won't happen. I don't think it will happen. But were that to be the case, this would be an interlude, really an interregnum, if you will, between a an Obama administration and the next Democratic administration, whoever, you know, uh, Kamala Harris, uh, uh, Cory Booker, Elizabeth Warren, whomever they're going to put up as the leader of the Democratic Party next, right? They they need to get stuff done. That is a part of this too. Sure, it's necessary to blunt the uh, the subversive forces within the media that are lying to people, that are trying to cloud perception, that are running with an agenda under the guise of nonpartisan journalism, right? They're just lying to your face all the time. And they're like, we're not lying. Yeah, yeah, they are. Um, And they pretend that when they get caught in a lie, it's always an honest mistake. But you can't make all these mistakes in one area and keep claiming that it's honest. There's clearly more at work. But getting stuff done, put simply, is essential. And to that end, you have a number of things happening right now. For one, Trump is saying, look, you've got to get... You've got to get this healthcare thing back on track. And the uh, the polling that I saw today shows that people are blaming Congress and they're blaming senators for 
the inability to get something done on health care instead of blaming Trump. And I think that there's some frustration from some quarters, certainly in the media, as a result of that. The assumption that they've been acting under has been that if health care can't get done, the president will get blamed. If health care stalls out, it's something that Trump owns. It's Trump's problem. Uh, but, well, I disagree with that, and I'll tell you why. Um, and I think a majority of Trump voters, Republican voters, at this people who voted for Trump, I should say, would feel the same way because uh, it's the president's job to sell the deal and explain the deal to the American people. It's the Congress's job to legislate, to write it, and to pass it. Trump signs it, and Trump is a very important uh, voice, a very important megaphone in this whole debate and discussion. And I know that there have been some who are criticizing him, understandably so, for taking various positions on the issue. But the Congress, Republicans in the Congress, keep changing the product that the president is supposed to sell. If he's going to, and people say, well, Buck, you should be leading on this. How is he going to lead? He's not, he's not a senator. He's not Mike Lee. He's not uh, any of the others that have expressed, you know, Rand Paul or uh, any of the three Republican female senators that have come out and said that they will, you know, Capito and uh, what is it, uh, Murkowski, and I'm forgetting who the other one is. Um, but they're, you know, he can't make it all happen. He's only able to sell what they put forward and he's trying. And so I think it's interesting to see people say, well, look at all the different places Trump has been on this issue. Well, the the Congress I mean, people in the Congress right now, Republicans have been saying they're going to repeal this thing for seven years. Uh, and now we get a, oh, it was going to be this, and the House bill has to be different from the Senate bill. Uh, we have to do this before taxes. Oh, actually, no, we can do taxes. We'll move on to taxes. Oh, no, we'll go back to health care. This is the way the bill's going to be. No, that's the way the bill's going to be. The Senate's going to pass it. No, they're not. They're going to repeal it. I mean, it's dizzying. I, I know right now you're listening to me. You're like, whoa, Buck, settle down. A little less caffeine. But it's true. There have been so many different presentations of the issue, and the president's job is to sell it. And so, yeah, he's having a tough time selling it because he's they keep changing the offering. And now we're not sure what's going to happen. And he's basically just saying, "Look, you got to do you got to do something here, guys." I have pen in hand. You never had that before. For seven years, you had. An easy route. We'll repeal, we'll replace, and he's never going to sign it. But I'm signing it. So it's a little bit different. People are hurting. Inaction is not an option. And frankly, I don't think we should leave town unless we have a health insurance plan, unless we can give our people great health care. Because we're close. We're very close. I feel like politicians are on vacation a lot. And I know they'll say, oh, well, I'm spending time with my constituents and I'm, you know, they're really just raising money and and hanging out at fundraisers. Uh, But I think they get plenty of time off. This is a critical issue. This affects people. This affects you. It affects me. Every single one of us in the country right now will, in one way or another, either suffer or benefit from what the Senate and what the Congress does when it comes to health care. There's no avoiding it. There's no way around it. It, it, It's not possible, right? Either you or someone in your immediate family, or not even somebody, you, you, this will matter. 
Um, this will affect uh, your ability to pay for your premiums. This will affect because, of course, the individual market sends signals to the rest of the healthcare market, and the more government regulations that are involved here, the more will come. And this is this is really about the future. Not just of healthcare, but about the relationship in this country between citizen and state. Because as we've seen, most notably and recently in the UK with the Charlie Gard case, if the government has complete say so over your healthcare choices, the government really has the power of life and death over you. And that is a fundamental transformation of the relationship that US citizens expect to have with their government. And I'm not saying we are there now or would be there soon, but if we continue down the path with all these Democrats clamoring for a single uh, payer, if we continue on that stretch of of road, we will eventually come to a place where the government is instituting rationing by decree, is deciding who gets what care and when and at what level. We'll have the power of life and death over you. And you could say, well, Buck, right now, what happens if you can't afford it? Because there's a market in place, at least there's some, you know, you can do, you can go to to relatives, to friends, a community can raise money. There's somewhere to go. You can try, you can go to hospitals that have, uh, that are, that are charitably run, that there's, there's options, right? If the government's in charge of everything, the government says, sorry, this is not what you're getting. You're in the situation of Charlie Gard's parents. If the government owns and runs the facilities and determines who gets the care and when and at what level, there's, there's nowhere else really to go. You could say, oh, well, in some countries they have, in the U.K. even, you know, you can you can pay, you can go for, well, not in the case of Charlie Gard. Uh, they wouldn't even allow him to leave the hospital because the government feels like it has the right to determine what its citizens, and really in the case of the U.K., it feels more like subjects right now, uh, determines what they can do. It is a choice issue, issue, it is a freedom issue, and that is... What is at stake here? And that's why I think the slow walk back from the Obamacare repeal, which has turned into a full-fledged flight and route for Republicans, is so uh, dispiriting, but also so meaningful. And we, we need to understand why this matters, because it's not just about what the health care bill looks like in a few weeks. It's what the trajectory of the relationship between citizen and state is in this country. Yes, through the prism of health care, but health care is 20 percent of the economy and it is a daily issue for all of us and a life or death issue for many of us. The direction of this debate matters. It's not just about what happens tomorrow or next week or next month. Is the healthcare system going to be more based in freedom and choice and the individual, or is it going to be increasingly collectivized and bureaucratized? All right. Uh, phones are open. 844-900-2825. I want to talk to you about uh, Trump's voter fraud commission, voter fraud. Uh, like I said, Linda Sarsour and Asada Shakur, that issue, uh, fake news, civil asset forfeiture. Jeff Sessions and I not on the same side of this issue. Jeff, we got a problem here. We're going to hit a break here, team. We'll be right back. Stay with me. Lines are lit. Let's take some calls. Nick up in, uh, or Nikki rather, up in Alaska. What's going on on KENI? Hey, good to talk to you, Buck. I'm privileged to do so. Um, I just wanted to shed a little bit of light on the Lisa Murkowski issue, our wonderful senator that we have up here. 
Uh, a lot of people don't know how she got into office this last time. Uh, what happened was um, we had another uh, candidate, Joe Miller, who won the Republican primary. And Lisa just couldn't accept that, so she uh, entered a write-in campaign as an independent, and she sold herself to the Native Alaskans with a lot of liberal entitlement policies and ended up winning her seat back. And then our Democrat in Republican clothing governor (laughs) sold out to Obamacare because he wanted to do the Medicaid expansion. And I just heard on our local media not too long ago that now in Alaska, one in four citizens is on Medicaid. Well, that so, that tell, that's I mean, what I, it all all comes down to, by the way. That's what it's all uh, that's what it's all about for these. Uh, by the way, it was um, uh, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, Shelley Moore Capito of West Virginia, Dean Heller of Nevada. These are the uh, moderate so-called moderate Republicans that have had a problem with this. Well, she's not a moderate. She supports <laughs> Planned Parenthood. Oh, wow. Acts. She's, she, is, she supports the Medicaid expansion, and she's literally sold herself out um, to the, the liberal mentality. And I suspect she's going to have a really tough time winning next time. All right. Well, thank you for the, uh, for the uh, update on what happened up there in Alaska. Good to know. Appreciate it. Shields high, Nikki. Uh, Ken in North Carolina, WPTI. What's up, Ken? Hey, how you doing, Buck? I'm good. Great to talk to you. You too. Thank you for calling yeah, in. Yeah, what I was calling about, uh, this health care talk everybody's talking about, if you want a true example of how bad government-run health care can be, take a look at what our veterans are dealing with at the VA. Yeah, I hear about com- I hear complaints about this all the time from from veterans uh, and and from people that, that I know in, in my private life who, who served and who are dealing with dealing with the system. I will say that there are... Some there are some there are cases I will speak to people and they say that you you can get very good care at the VA, but you can also get substandard bad care at the VA and and you can wait too long. So it it depends. Right. I'm going through a horror story with my dad now. He's a veteran and he actually works at a VA hospital and it's been six months trying to get him, you know, get to the doctor. You know, they'll make him an appointment and then they'll cancel the appointment. They'll make him an appointment. It's terrible. Yeah. And by the way, that's a that's a small subset of the overall U.S. population, veterans who have a tremendous amount of bipartisan political support for their health care, at least rhetorically speaking. Right. A lot of politicians are like, oh, yeah, anything for veterans. Uh, And and they can and they can't get delivery of health care right even just for veterans. Right. So so imagine if you expanded that out for the entire country, you just all the problems, all the shortcomings would be magnified and the cost would be incredibly high. Right. Yeah. No, look, man, uh, thank. First of all, tell your dad, thank you for his service. And thank you uh, for calling in, Ken. And, and, you know, stay on it. I mean, you know, you just got to this is one of these things where endurance and persistence, two of the most important qualities really in life and uh, qualities people don't often talk about. But I I think the difference between success and failure, between making it through and being left by the side, uh, you know, career-wise and otherwise, endurance and persistence. (laughs) Those are two qualities they should be teaching kids in school from day one. We'll be back in a few. Stay with me. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. 
you got people chanting, uh, chanting outside of the GOP Senate offices there about uh, health care, possibility of Obamacare repeal. Uh, this this is going to continue on. Look, it's an essential issue. Uh, this debate is is much more than even just about health care, although health care matters enough for it to be very important. It's also really to uh, it goes to core political philosophy in this country and what kind of a country we are. Uh, David in Florida, we want to take one more call on health care. He's on WFLF, and then we're going to talk about uh, the Voter Integrity Commission stuff. But uh, what's up, David? Hey, how you doing today? I'm good, sir. Thank you for calling in. Um, I'm out here in the trenches every day. I'm a home health nurse, so I've seen all walks of life. You know, people with VA, people with Medicare, people with Medicaid, and I see all their struggles. Um, it, you know, I have patients that are on Medicare that need benefits, but they can't get it. But their neighbor on Medicaid can, but they're paying for it. So it's kind of hard to explain that to people um, as to why that, that even happens. Um, what I would like to see is not necessarily a single-payer plan through the government, but I would like them to take the VA plans, the Medicare plan and a Medicaid plan, and put it all out on the table, make one insurance plan out of it, and give it to everybody for a fair price, no matter who you are, if you work for the government, a celebrity, a bum. And instead of it being through the government only, give you the option to get it through your employer, through Blue Cross or Humana, but tell these these companies, this is the plan you're going to offer people, and this is the price. They can get it from you, or they can get it for us. If you don't want to do it, then you can go out of business. But that way, the government doesn't have a monopoly on it. So and I, just, I feel like it's a win-win for everybody. Now, let me let me um, understand. Let's walk through this together, David. So you you think, okay. and and I and by the way, I appreciate that you're out there, as you said, on the front lines of this issue. And you're you're you said you're a nurse, right? So you're dealing with people every day that are trying to pay their health care bills and are dealing with health care struggles, right? That's that's accurate. And they're constantly getting denied. By right, them. right. Okay. No, I just want to make sure that I'm, I'm representing who you are, your point of view, your, your point of view, probably before we talk about the issue together. So, you, what you would like would be if there were a a plan that was offered to everybody that the government sponsored. So that would be at least ostensibly an insurance plan. So, so there would be like the you know Uncle Sam's insurance plan. For a hundred dollars a month, we cover your, you know, we, we cover your healthcare needs or whatever it is. Five hundred dollars a month, whatever the case may be, is is that kind of what you're saying? I'm I'm trying to make sure because usually the debate well, the debate I'm, becomes. I'm, saying, I'm sorry, I'm go ahead. A, I'm saying that is that's one option, but the other option, like I currently work and get into insurance through my employer, so I can get this same plan through my employer through Blue Cross if I choose to get Blue Cross insurance. Or if I choose to get it through the government, you know, I have that option. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, well, I, I, see, why Why even have the government... I'm not, I'm not trying to talk over you, David, but I'm trying to move us move us together here. Yeah. Um, why have right, the right. Why have the government involved at all? Why not just allow Blue Cross to sell plans that it wants to sell to anyone anywhere in the country? Do you see what I'm... I mean, which was what, by the way, conservatives yeah. and the GOP I, have been I, saying for years. I'm all for getting government out, period. But, you know, there's going to be people like the ones that are under Medicaid now that Blue Cross can't cover. So that's why I say 
you can get it through the government or you can get it through your employer or whoever. It gives you more choices. Um, and I'm talking about a reasonable premium, you know what I mean? Not not too cheap where Blue Cross can't sustain a business or where the government... But, but David, as you as you know, health care and the costs associated with it and, and the, care, uh, the care itself, these are very complicated issues. And so would this plan effectively cover anything that would be considered a health care need? Because... That would be incredibly expensive, uh, and it also. I mean, you you look at California, for example. They've been thinking about having single payer, so that means the government. And this is a very important distinction, right? There's socialized medicine, which the VA is actually in microcosm in a small form. Uh, the VA is socialized medicine, meaning that. It is the government in control of the hospitals, the doctors, the providers, paying their salaries, determining benefits and and all of that. And, you know, the the VA is, um, you know, it comes from the uh, and David, I'm going to try to address your stuff, but I will I will let you go here. But please keep listening. in. I'm going to try to address everything we're saying. But thank you very much for calling in um, because I want to go into a few a few points here. But thank you. Uh, first of all, this, this all comes, the VA comes out of, uh, what we're, cons- what we're called, uh, old soldiers homes after the, uh, which proliferated, which came about after the civil war, uh, to care for disabled and elderly veterans. Uh, it wasn't until the 1920s that Congress pulled together the Bureau of War Risk, uh, Insurance and the Public Health Service. And the Federal Board of Vocational Education into the Veterans Bureau. And then under Hoover in 1930, you had the veterans, the creation of the Veterans Administration, the VA as we know it. Now, when I say that it's socialized medicine, I'm, I'm not trying to say that as a pejorative. It's just that is an example of socialized medicine, which is also what they have in the UK. So it's the the government owns and runs the hospital, pays the doctors tells you what the policies are, who gets care, and all that. And the VA has had, for for a long time now, uh, substandard care, unsanitary conditions in a lot of facilities. Now, there are some very good VA facilities, too, and I know that. I mean, I've, I've heard this from both sides. But there have been cases and, and case studies done of the VA that you think this was is very unlikely to have happened, say, at a private hospital. Some of those things that have gone gone on at, at the VA. And then you get into, well, who is the government really accountable to? The answer is the government's not particularly accountable all, at all. Uh, does the VA have to subject itself to market competition? The answer is no. You go to the VA hospital you're told to go to, and that's that. Now, there have been efforts to try and give veterans more options and allow for uh, you to take a voucher and go get private uh, private medical treatment, which I think is an excellent idea, and that they should expand that, right? It's kind of a public-private partnership, or it's a, a really a voucher system, the VA. And that's essentially a single-payer-like system, because for veterans, the government is just going to be picking up the tab, but the government does not necessarily have to be in control of the means of healthcare production, so to speak. That's where you get into the socialized medicine side of it. Single payer is just the government pays for your health care. Medicare is a single payer program right now that and now we pay into Medicare and there's always this discussion about, well, that's not really uh, that's an entitlement that you deserve because you paid into it. The reality, unfortunately, is that most 
people of the uh, the boomer generation are going to take out twice as much as they paid into Medicare. So that's a that's a problem. That's why it's such a, a budget buster. And that's why it's so expensive and has so many problems. But Medicare is single payer. Single payer is very, very, very expensive. California recently looked at single payer and it, I think it was over three hundred billion dollars for just the residents of California, which is more than the whole state's budget. What Obamacare is and what they also have or Obamacare aspires to at some level, because it's only a a small section of the market, is similar to what they have in uh, in Switzerland, uh, which is subsidized private insurance. So you have private insurance companies. The government gives people who need it and they determine it on a sliding scale, a subsidy to buy insurance. And then you're just like everybody else on the insurance market. But you are getting government help to pay for that premium. So it's it's subsidized. Right. And that's what Obamacare is. The problem with Obamacare is that in addition to those subsidies, you have all these determinations about what can and cannot be covered, what will and will not be covered, who pays more and who does not. Uh, So that's where it really ceases to be insurance. And it's actually just subsidized health care and when you just have subsidized health care instead of insurance because remember insurance is you pay with the idea that maybe you need it maybe you don't you're hoping you don't but there is a risk factor for you and you pay based on that risk factor obamacare eliminates a lot of that and certainly with pre-existing conditions but also more generally eliminates risk factors and brings into the equation a lot of payments for different health care services that you may or may not want. But Obamacare says, no, if you're in the individual market, you have to provide the following uh, care, which drives up the prices there. And what you've had are people don't want the, the exchanges have very high deductibles. The exchanges are very uh, are not taken by a lot of doctors, the health care plans on them. And then you have a lot of sick people who want Obamacare on the individual market and healthier, younger people who are like, I'm getting a bad deal here. And that's what causes the death spiral in the exchange. But so just so we understand the continuum. And sorry, I'm talking about healthcare more than I meant to. But I think this is a, if we're going to talk about it, right, we should really get into it and, and get into what is happening, what the reality is here. Uh, it's a continuum. And on the one hand, you have just straight up socialized medicine, uh, which the VA is socialized medicine. So those of you who are like the VA near me is terrible or, you know, I have family members who dealt with the VA. That's socialized medicine for six million people, and they're spending like forty to fifty billion dollars a year. Uh, I'm sorry, over fifty billion dollars a year. Maybe it's more like sixty now on uh, on medical care. I mean, the overall healthcare spending in this country that the U.S. government puts out there is over a trillion. So, I mean, healthcare spending is vast. The VA is tiny. If they can't get the VA, if they can't spend. Let's call it $60 billion. I, I don't have the most recent figures in front of me, but I know it's roughly $50, $60 billion. If they can't spend $60 billion properly and tend to veterans who are a, a class of Americans that are owed something, it's not just, hey, I'm an American, give me stuff. It's no, no. This is a sacred obligation of the American state to those who wore the uniform and served. If they can't do that properly, think about what happens when you try to, as they would say in business, scale that health care. I mean, expand it out even. I mean, you're just have more problems, more unsanitary, filthy facilities, more, you know, more botched surgeries, more waiting lists, more all that. Right. It just gets worse and worse. When any government bureaucracy is going to have problems 
when it tries to handle more people and provide more services, right? So that so that's socialized medicine. Uh, single payer, as I said, is Medicare, which is they're just paying for it. But remember, they determine what they will and will not pay for. So it's not like, woohoo, Uncle Sam's got this checkbook and it's giving me everything I want. That's single payer. And then you have the Obamacare slash Swiss model, which maybe calling it a Swiss model is probably giving it too much credit, but which is subsidized private insurance. But the problem with Obamacare is that there's also mandates for that. It's not really just what the private insurers would do. You don't have pre-existing conditions. You don't charge for different lifestyle choices and behaviors that can have an impact on health. And so what you have are a lot of sick people who want to be in the exchange, and you have a lot of people on Medicaid who are getting free health care, but it's not very good. And younger, healthier people are like, I'm out. I'll pay the fine. And that's why you have the death spirals and the exchanges and insurers pulling out. So that's the healthcare continuum. And what, where I am and where some of the senators who are upset about this are is uh, how about we just say that we're going to allow people to buy the health care plan that they want to buy, no more government mandates, and create a system where if you need help based on your income to pay a premium for a private insurance plan, we'll provide that and we'll provide more for health savings accounts. No more pre-existing conditions. States will be able to handle on a state-by-state basis how they handle that pool of individuals, make sure that they get health care and are covered because we are uh, a kind-hearted and generous people, and let the market work its magic. That's where I want to bet. That's wh- that's to the right. That's that's off right now, it feels like, in some kind of Milton Friedman fantasy land where everyone just sits around talking about, you know, the wonders of the market. All right. I sorry. Healthcare talk went longer than I thought it would. I, I do want to talk to you about the uh, voter uh, voter integrity issues, uh, voter fraud issues. Trump talked about that today. We'll also we got uh, Matt Walsh, Fred Flights, Michael Goodwin joining us later. Uh, the Asada Shakur, Linda Sarsour issue. A lot, a lot more, a lot more. So we had this story break yesterday, and I won't spend much time on this because I know some of you are like, no, no Russia stuff, but that there was a second meeting, and I just, I reported, I mean, I didn't report it, I read it to you, told you about it because it was reported, that there was this second meeting with uh, with Trump and Putin at the G20, and the G20 is, as I said, a giant uh, affair of nothingness. It is a, a waste of everyone's time. Whatever country is there, their taxpayers should be annoyed because it's not... I mean, I guess you could say that, you know, having some of these world leaders shake each other's hands is worth something, but I don't know. I'm not sure it's worth much. Uh, But here's what they're saying now, Uh, or rather, here's what Trump is saying. President Trump lashed out at a report that he and Russian uh, President Vladimir Putin had a second previously undisclosed talk during the G20 summit in Germany earlier this month. Quote, this is on Twitter. Fake news story of secret dinner with Putin is sick. All G20 leaders and spouses were invited by the Chancellor of Germany. Press knew. Uh, Fox reports that the president said the dinner at which the encounter took place was known to members of the media who were covering the event. Trump then followed up with another tweet. Becoming more and more dishonest. The fake news is becoming more and more dishonest. Even a dinner arranged for top 20 leaders in Germany is made to look sinister uh so well, here we have the 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 appearance of trump at a dinner with a lot of other people and now uh, i think cnn broke this but cnn saying that this is quote a classic bit of trump misdirection no media outlet reported anything about a secret dinner no one is making the dinner look sinister and no one 
is suggesting that the media was unaware that the dinner was taking place. This is from Chris Saliza. That is not the story. The story is that the president of the United States had a somewhat lengthy sidebar conversation with the president of Russia with no other U.S. officials present. Uh, present. No, I'm sorry. It, it is supposed to look sinister. I mean, are we, is this this is how we're going to play this game now? We're all just supposed to, oh, I can't figure anything out. Oh, I'm just, you know, whatever the press says, you know. Uh, this is crazy. Of course, the report about a second meeting with, with Putin, and it wasn't a meeting. The guy's at dinner. And he's like having a dinner talk. I'm sorry. Is he going to have his top his his top secret Russia collusion conversation at dinner surrounded by all the other world leaders? That's that's where it's going to happen. Really? This reminds me of when there was all that the the breathless reporting about Jeff Sessions unreported meeting with a Russian ambassador that was set up in public by the Heritage Foundation. It was like a shake hand meet and greet thing in front of tons of people. We had Jim Carafano from the Heritage Foundation say that he set up the event. Uh, and Jim is an awesome guy and a patriot. And uh, he's just like, this is crazy. But the press still reported like, oh, oh Jeff Sessions, he was, you know, he was, up, 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 up. He was there with the guy Russian who was like, look, maybe we'll uh, make this election more uh, more fun for you, more easy. I don't Is my Russian too Transylvanian or am I just... No, I got to work on this. I'm not sure. Uh, we are going to probably do the real history of... This is like p- putting, a, putting a pin in the calendar for way, way far away. But in October, I like to do a Halloween special. We'll probably do the real history of Dracula this year, which is amazing, by the way. Um, so get excited for that on Halloween. Uh, but we're going to talk about uh, Trump stuff from today, including voter uh, voter fraud and some other issues in the, in the uh, headlines. We'll be right back. Stay with me. The Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? The buck is back. Let's talk about voter fraud, everybody. The president today uh, had a meeting of his uh, voter fraud commission, and they have uh, the election integrity panel. And here is our president of the United States, Donald Trump, talking about, well, what they're trying to accomplish with this. This issue is very important to me because throughout the campaign and even after it, People would come up to me and express their concerns about voter inconsistencies and irregularities, which they saw, in some cases having to do with very large numbers of people in certain states. All public officials have a profound responsibility to protect the integrity of the vote. We have no choice. We want to make America great again. We have to protect the integrity of the vote and our voters. This is not a Democrat or a Republican issue. It's an American issue. It's about the concern of so many Americans that improper voting has taken place and canceling out the votes of lawful American citizens. President Trump talking about this issue really upsets the left. And I I think that what you're going to find as they continue to look at this is that uh, regardless of the outcome, this exposes some very uncomfortable positions that the left takes on on voting. First of all, uh, they will say, for example, you, you will often hear 
from Democrats, from pundits, from people who go on TV and are supposed to know stuff. But here's a secret. Most of them don't know anything. Most of them are actually terrible. Uh, but anyway, there are... Right, says the radio host. Uh, there are no instances, they'll tell you, of voter fraud. Voter fraud is not real. That's what they will say. And then sure enough, either on social media or if there's a point-counterpoint, someone like me will, if, we're, I'm on, if I'm on TV, will get to say, okay, well, people go to prison for it every year, so your statement is false. And then they'll throw up their hands and say, oh, well, fine. What is it? Five cases in this state, five cases in that state? And you say to yourself, okay, well, but you, you made a blanket statement that suggests that there's no such thing as voter fraud, which is kind of a crazy thing to say, right? And by the way, if you go back and look at uh, the career of Lyndon Johnson, uh, if you go back and look at what some people say about Kennedy, voter fraud probably changed the course of U.S. history with national elections, with uh, with presidential elections, with Senate elections. I mean, depends on which instance we're talking about. But but voter fraud is a real thing, does happen. People go to prison for it. And we really have no way of knowing what the scope and scale of the problem is. We, we just we have no way of knowing. And if you look at the Senate race up in Minnesota, for example, between Al Franken and I believe it was Norm Coleman, which turned on, remember, this is a race for the U.S. Senate, turned on few, a few hundred votes? Uh, do, we, do we really think that it's inconceivable that there may be, in a statewide election, a uh, hundred votes here or there that are fraudulent, that are Im- improperly cast, even without malicious, malicious intent, which I want to get to that as well, by the way, how that's a major part of this issue. Um, but elections can be very close, Need I refresh memories here about the 2000 presidential uh, presidential election with Al Gore and George W. Or, you know, hanging chads and dimples and all that stuff here and there uh, on the voting machines and or dimpled chads, hanging chads, whatever it was. Um, those were two different things. It was a small number of votes. So when you look at a state and you find out that there are maybe thousands of thousands of dead people, tens of thousands of dead people who are still registered to vote, or there are uh, convicted felons who are still registered to vote, or there are or, and and maybe have cast votes, right? And and you you start to look at all the different ways. Never mind motor voter, which says you know they try to register people at the DMV. Well, in a place like California, you can as an illegal. You can get a driver's license, which is pretty astonishing when you just take a step back and think about that for a second. But you can get a driver's license, and they're also at the DMV trying to sign people up to vote. And I don't mean to—I don't mean to suggest that necessarily an illegal who's been in this country for a long time even knows that they are committing an additional illegality by voting when they're not a citizen. But they may think, well, they're giving me this form, and so you know, I'm going to vote. And that's and and now you get into the numbers and look is is it helpful is it helpful that the Trump that President Trump himself said that you know he would have won the popular vote and two to three million votes may have been illegally cast well you can argue that I mean it's sloppy from the perspective of numbers and accuracy and some of you are probably laughing you're like Buck you really bend it over back it's sloppy but. But on the other hand, you could say, well, no one really, no one knows, and it does 
raise the possibility, uh, or at least raises the idea in people's minds that there might be voting that's uh, in a presidential election. You know, there might be tens of thousands, maybe in the low hundreds of thousands of votes that should not have been cast for a whole variety of reasons. And that could be the determining factor in a presidential election. As we know, these elections can get very, very close. We are a polarized country when it comes to our politics between two between two poles. We are politically, uh, well, I guess politically bipolar, so to speak. I mean, we are at two ends, Democrat and Republican. So Trump is trying to get this out there for, and you know, I know Chris Kobach is also very involved with this issue and has been, has been pushing it. Uh, and it's, it's something that he's of course getting a, a ton of heat from the left on this. Um, Kobach is in, uh, what is he in? He's a uh, Kansas, right? So he's, he's a part of this as well. Kansas is Republican secretary of state. He's the vice chairman of Trump's commission on this voter fraud issue. But now we get into, okay, so that's, those are the, the maybes, the why, the let's look into this. And as additional context, remember, we hear all the stuff about Russia and election hacking and collusion and all that. And with all the sanctimonious Democrat, oh, but, you know, our elections are so important. This is an American issue and the elections have to be perfect. And, you know, what if Russia changed? Okay, fine. Right. We we are supposed to all take this seriously as Americans that are the integrity of our electoral processes are essential. And like I'm I'm not making light of our electoral processes. I do think that they are vastly uh, intentionally exaggerating even the possibility of of impact on voters from all that Russia stuff. But they, of course, have a political incentive in, in pushing that narrative as, as much as they possibly can. Uh, but on the one hand, we're hearing all the stuff about, oh, look at Russia. Maybe Russia did some, was involved in the election in a way that was problematic. On the other hand, when we talk about the very real ways that there could be voter fraud going on, and there are cases of voter fraud. They are prosecuted. So it is a crime that happens. That is an established fact. Uh, when you look at it and you want to try to find out more, you get all this pushback from Democrats. They, they get all weirded out about this. I, wait, I, I thought that, you know, we I thought that a few Russian based bots putting out, uh, you know, stories about Pizzagate or whatever on the Internet or whatever it is. I, I thought that was a threat to democracy. But maybe... Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people voting who are not supposed to vote. That's not we're not allowed to look into that. We, we can't even get answers. In fact, this is where they really go with this. Even looking for answers is somehow it's, it's like it's racist. You're just trying to get rid of the votes of minorities, poor people. Um, you know, I would say the elderly, but, you know, the elderly, a lot of them vote Republican, obviously. So they, they won't throw that in there quite as much. But minorities, poor people, young people, um, you're just trying to disenfranchise them. So the, the argument over uh, voting always go. It, it always falls into the same the same two camps here. The Republicans are like, well, let's have voter ID. Let's strengthen our systems. Let's know more about what's going on. And Democrats are always you're racist. That's mean. No voter ID. You should just show up and vote. Let's not pay attention to who's voting. Let's not count. Let's not look into this. No investigations. No if, ands, or buts. Just, you know, just shut your face, Republicans. Shut your face, right? I mean, that's that's basically how it always goes. And now Trump, because he's president, has the authority and the say-so to go, no, I don't think so. 
I think we're going to look into this a little bit more. And he even asked, why is it that when the federal government back in May uh, requested information for the Voter Fraud Commission from states, there are 20 states that uh, have refused to comply with this request. 30 states have shared the information about voting and what's going on there, but but 20 states are saying, no, they're, they're not going to do it. Um, Trump addressed this today when he had his Voter Commission meeting. If any state does not want to share this information, one has to wonder what they're worried about. And I asked the vice president, I asked the commission, what are they worried about? There's something. There always is. Yeah, why not just share the information? There's there's all this pushback. I understand there are political narratives here. But here's where, well, in the, in the short term, what you'll see, and this is why it's a brilliant move for the Trump administration to do this. Um, in the short term, what you'll see are a lot of Democrats, politicians and the media saying things about voting that are not true. And showing this very strange, reflexive defensiveness over any inquiry into whether there are illegal votes being cast or not. There, there will be this, this automatic, oh, blah, 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 voter fraud, it's not a real thing, and why do you care? Blah, blah, blah. I mean, you know, I mean, the, the government spends like millions of dollars with various federal agencies, you know, looking into the, the mating habits of... Of, of seasonal snails, you know, you, you'd figure that we could look into voter fraud, right? I mean, this is, is this really such a, a terrible waste of resources and time? Experts on the issue will say, we don't know. Legitimate experts on, on voting and voter integrity, they'll, they'll tell you, you know, we, we have no way of tracking this. I mean, I can tell you from my own experience here in New York City, working with career law enforcement at the NYPD, whenever I talk to them, we would talk about like Medicaid, um, uh, well, not just Medicaid fraud, but any form of welfare fraud. There's no, there's no political will or incentive to prosecute low-level welfare fraud because you know people don't people don't want to do it. They don't want to spend the resources, and certainly in a place like New York City, it's a bad political look, right? You're going after the underclass. So if somebody's cheating, if someone's you know claiming dependence, they don't have it. So when people talk about oh how, how much fraud is there in the system, they, they don't know. They don't know. Sure, once every six months, they'll prosecute somebody who's claiming, like, you know, to have 20 dependents and is getting welfare benefits upwards of $10,000 a month or something, right? And, and that's supposed to be, you know, oh, cracking down. Sure, once in a while, there'll be someone who votes four times and is really dumb about it, and they'll get prosecuted. But do we have any way of knowing who's voting? But there's, there's some even bigger issues at, at play here, which is how this will, if there are some interesting findings, how that will play out, and I think... Uh, could be used in part to dull the edge of the Russia collusion narrative through the voter fraud issue. But I'll have to explain that to you on the other side of the break. Stay with me. I've got much more. You think that maybe Hillary Clinton did not win the popular vote? We may never know the answer to that question. How do you I know say we may never know the answer to that question? Really? really? You really believe that? Well, I'm, I'm, what I'm saying is let's suppose that the commission determined that there were a certain number of votes cast by ineligible voters. You still won't know whether those people who were ineligible voted for Trump or for Clinton or for somebody else. Votes for Donald Trump that led him to win the election in doubt as well? Absolute. There are ineligible voters in an election, people who are non-citizens, people who are felons who shouldn't be voting. So are, is according our democratic to the laws of that process state, completely broken? Are we not, should we not be confident that when we cast a, a, a ballot that anyone we're voting for is actually 
going to get elected? That, that's exactly the reason the commission. That's exactly the reason the commission exists. That's uh, MSNBC's Katie Turr uh, and Kansas Secretary of State Chris Kobach, who's a vice chair on the Presidential Advisory Commission on Election Integrity, going back and forth. There, you, you see what I mean. You'll, you'll notice that with the left, and I mean MSNBC anchor, she's clearly a, a progressive. Um, if I had to guess, she probably lives in in Park Slope in Brooklyn. Those of you from New York know what I'm talking about. Uh, that. Uh, any asking any questions, trying to get answers. That's that's a sin here. That's unacceptable. They don't want you to even do that. That'll get you in trouble. You're like, wait a second. Well, I, I, I we would like to know the extent, the possible extent of the fraud here. Left the left is hostile to that because they also have it as an assumption that if only more people voted, Democrats would always win. And Democrats lose. This is a, a baked in assumption. Every election, no matter what it is, Democrats lose because of voter suppression, which is racist. That's usually what the that's the narrative. That's the storyline that Democrats tell themselves. So they you know feel safe and warm at night after they lose elections. Uh, and that's very it's very important to them also because it, it's another method of having a discussion about racism. Right. They say, oh, voter suppression, voter suppression is because of racism and Republicans are racist. And therefore, all of their voter integrity measures are really just cloaked uh, uh, measures of racism. Right. They're just uh, veiled efforts to be racist. And that's how this discussion always goes back and forth, even though in, in, in some cases they'll they'll do something, they'll change a I think it was in North Carolina, they changed the voter ID law and even more minorities in the following election turned out than the election before but you know, the, the facts with this stuff don't matter it's the it's the perception that really matters the most but here's what i what i wanted to get at before um and uh this is keep this in mind no matter what the just like with russia you know once you've established in the media's mind and in democrats across the country once you've established that russia whether you believe this or not by the way but once you've put out there that russia uh wanted trump to win and did something to help him win you can call into question, and that's what Democrats do, the whole legitimacy of the entire process, because how effective was that effort? Yeah, we'll never know. But is Trump really the president? Uh, you know, not really sure. That's what Democrats do. Okay. Well, once they push forward with this, and you could see, and that's why there was that hostility with Katie Turr and Chris Kobach there because of how this, I think the Democrats at some level know how this is going to play out, or at least this is how I see it playing out. As they get more information about states and about voting in different states and registration and everything that's and possible voter intimidation and whatever else they're looking into, they don't need to have uh, ironclad proof of millions of people voting who are ineligible to vote to call into question the election. Right. They all they need depends on the state. But if they can even find evidence that, I don't know, 10,000 people voted who are ineligible they can always say, well, that's all. That's just what we found. So that's that's uh, the tip of the iceberg. And if we really knew the full extent and, and we can't, by the way, because of the way that, you know, in some places you just like sign a statement that says I'm eligible to vote and there's no voter ID and you know, there's all kinds of variations uh, because we have no way of really knowing if you can prove. I know this is I'm kind of getting down in the weeds here in, in a buck theory, but. If you can prove that there were any irregularities in the last election when it comes to uh, voters who were ineligible to vote, 
in substantial numbers, not huge numbers, but substantial numbers, then it allows Republicans, it allows the Trump administration to do on that issue what the Democrats have been doing on Russia, which is, the, you know how people say, oh, the Democrats hacked, or the, uh, <laughs> the Democrats hacked, the Russians hacked the election, and that's just a phrase that's used as though that's not a really dishonest way of, of approaching it all. What you will have once this commission is done is, uh, you know, th- there were there were Democrats who were cheating. That'll be. I, I think you'll find that that was a true statement. I mean, there'll be some Democrat voters out there who weren't supposed to vote, and that will become a narrative. Just like Russia hacked the election as a narrative, you'll have well, Democrats were cheating. There was cheating going on. How much cheating? Well, we'll never really know, but we know that they cheated. Do you see the parallel? Do you see the similarity with what they've done with Russia? By the way, all it takes is some. Little in, little effort online, some cyber intrusion, some campaign of fake news, whatever it is. And, oh, they hacked the election. OK, well, now Trump's going to turn around and say, oh, you mean some of these, in some cases, taxpayer subsidized, you know, get out the vote efforts and some of these community organizer groups and some of these unions. And it, there there were some there were some shenanigans. There were some voting happening that shouldn't have happened. And, of course, the assumption will be or in some cases they might be able to prove that it was for Democrats. Well, that's just what we found. But. You know, Russia hacked the election. Democrats cheated in the election. That's what I think you're going to see the narrative turn into. Just give it some time. And that will drive that will drive the left crazy, which will be kind of fun to watch. Um, We've got uh, much more to talk about, including civil asset forfeiture, where I really depart with the administration on this one. We'll be right back. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. So what's all going to happen now? We got we got Louis Gohmert. He's talking about what's going on with the country and whether Trump will succeed or not and who wants him to succeed. And I, I've always really liked Louis. Here's what, here's what he's from Texas, of course. Here's what he had to say. I actually think that there are people within the Republican Party in this building I'm standing in who are not interested in seeing Trump succeed. And I tell you what, it's not about Trump succeeding. It's about the American people succeeding because Trump succeeds. So they've got to put aside those things. Okay, it's about the American people succeeding if Trump succeeds. Well, how's that all going? We got somebody who's going to weigh in on this now. Michael Goodwin, New York Post columnist and Fox News contributor. His latest up on NewYorkPost.com. Despite his missteps, don't consider Trump a failure just yet. Michael, great to have you back, sir. Thank you, Buck. Okay, you say not a failure yet. Well, let's let's first just get it out there because you're going to give us this the sunny side of things, the silver lining, the 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 bright future that still may lay ahead. But what do you see as the missteps? Because you've been somebody who's on the Trump train. Yeah, look, I, I mean, I think that uh, the, the latest, the biggest being Donald Trump Jr.'s meeting uh, with the Russian lawyer. Um, I think in hindsight, even he has acknowledged he would have done it differently. And I think that was a tacit admission that it was a mistake. I mean, look at the trouble it's brought. There's a report that uh, Robert Mueller has contacted the eighth person in the meeting, uh, a Russian real estate developer, and asked for an interview. So that means Mueller is looking at the meeting. Now, that is a significant development. Um, I think there are other examples, too. Uh, um, I think that the president uh, has damaged his own credibility with some of the tweets. Uh, Anytime he goes after people personally in the tweeting, 
I think it's uh, he's punching down. The president of the United States should not be punching down to uh, even Mika Brzezinski or anybody like that. Um, the the other one, I think the, the the big one really is the effective or ineffective operation of the White House itself. I mean, I have never seen so many leaks coming from the West Wing. Um, you have a lot of clear differences being played out in the media. You know, it's almost as though uh, different parts of different newspapers and media organizations have different sources who are competing with each other to to badmouth the other side. Uh, so when you hear reporters, and I have heard reporters talking as though uh, they cannot believe the vituperation in the White House and the rancor and the bitterness and how openly people are expressing it uh, to the media. So I think that is a major issue, that the White House itself still does not seem to be settled. It doesn't seem to be focused. It doesn't seem to be united. And if it's pulling in different directions and people are undercutting each other, can only imagine, uh, you know, how the impact of that plays out in terms of something like health care, where you get uh, the president uh, out on a limb and just not be able to bring the Republican Party with him. Before I push you, Michael, on telling us how you think this can all get fixed and and how America could, in fact, still be made great again, I guess. Pardon me for uh, for borrowing from the campaign there. But uh, how do you apport—so we're going to talk about the positive side of it and, and how things can be turned around— in a second, everybody, don't 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 uh, don't worry. Um, but how do you apportion the blame for the health care debacle right now in terms of Trump vis-a-vis the Congress? Because I I said at the start of the show today, Trump is the, Trump is selling the deal, but he's not the guy constructing the deal. That's up to Congress. So I think it mostly falls with Mitch McConnell and before him, Paul Ryan. But I want to know what your take is. I completely agree. Um, there have been some criticism that the president uh, wasn't deeply involved enough. Look, Barack Obama was very involved in Obamacare. Look what a disaster it was. I don't think, uh, particularly, look, this president, this is not his area of strength. He was a Johnny-come-lately to health care. Uh, so I, I think that, that that he's supposed to be the detail man now, I think is wrong. He is selling, he is trying to bring the Republican Party together and try to get it to unite around wherever there are 50 votes. That's what he did in the House with Paul Ryan. Uh, wherever there was a majority, 216, he was going to be there with it. Uh, the same in the, in the Senate. So I think he is leaving the details to others. He is not trying to get senators to vote for something they disapprove of and en masse. He's simply saying to Mitch McConnell in this case, where are the 50 votes? Bring me that bill, and I will try to sell it. We're speaking to Michael Goodwin. He's New York Post columnist and Fox News contributor. He's got a piece up right now. On NewYorkPost.com, despite his missteps, don't consider Trump a failure just yet. Let's talk about that. Not a failure just yet means he can still succeed. Michael, how does that happen starting right now? Well, look, I think that some of the things we're talking about, I mean, remember, Buck, when the House was failing to get Obamacare through and then suddenly they did, there was the, you know, the great uh, celebration on the on the uh, Rose Garden because the House did what they thought it couldn't be done. Now, if the Senate were to pull a rabbit out of a hat, I think that the mood would change dramatically. But look, I, I think overall, my point about uh, not counting Trump out 
is that nothing that's happened has foreclosed the promise of his presidency. In other words, everything that he talked about, raising the economy, bringing back uh, manufacturing jobs, uh, taking better so that trade deals uh, work for the country, so that the budget works better for the country, so that the military is stronger. None of that has been stopped. None of that has been permanently knocked off track. I think it's taken longer to get these things moving than it should have. But I think the regulation movements alone, uh, Gorsuch on the Supreme Court, I mean, these are all positive signs that will pay dividends for years. So this idea that the whole presidency is a failure and, you know, he's coming apart at the seams, there are days when it feels like that, but that is not the larger reality. Michael, what are your thoughts on uh, the, the press getting so upset about these uh, on or off-camera briefings? I mean, we had Sean Spicer talking about this. Let, let's just hear what he said, and then I want your reaction. So- we brief every day, uh, right. and the question is, I think for some individuals, uh, they want it. They want everything on camera every day. And as you know, like today, the president's going to have several events on camera. He's going to have the pool involved. Um, and so on days when he's going to be doing uh, big events and making major policy initiatives, it's obviously much more important to have the president's voice carry the day. Uh, and so we'll engage with reporters throughout the day. One of the things that, that people don't some, sometimes appreciate because of the way that they get it is, you know, we're here very early in the morning. We stay very late at night. We're engaging with the press all day long, doing interviews like this, communicating with the press. And then we do do a briefing every single day. Um, I think for a lot of folks that they're more interested in getting the clip, uh, you know, to, to put right. on the Internet, to put on their news. And, and we're not we're, we're interested in making sure that we communicate with the American people, that we give the press an opportunity to get their questions answered. I, I think Sean uh, Spicer is on very strong ground here because I think it is. I think a lot of people are looking for that viral anti-Trump moment in the West Wing these days. Absolutely. And look, uh, the, you know, I think it's it's instructive that. Uh, press secretaries from previous administrations, both Democrats and Republicans, have publicly publicly advised the Trump administration very early on and during the uh, transition period even, don't do these things on television every day. It's not necessary. It just becomes a a show and and a cheap way to attack the president. I mean, the questions become accusations when they are on the camera that way. So it, it is It is at the end of the week you have had, what, several hundred accusations thrown at the president and then one person trying to fend them off like a, like a batting cage. I mean, that's hardly, I think, helpful to the president. And look, this is not a First Amendment issue. Nobody is saying the media can't write or say whatever it wants. It's just the White House saying we don't have to you know, put our head in the, in the dunking pool every day to satisfy your audience. Michael Goodwin of the New York Post and Fox News. Great to have you on, Michael. Thank you for your time. Always a pleasure, Buck. Thank you. Uh, team, our phones are open here, 844-900-2825. Also, please do uh, check out, uh, well, check out me. Check me out on Twitter, uh, at Buck Sexton. Uh, I'm going to try to engage more with those of you on Team Buck. I've been hearing that you guys want more during show engagement, uh, so I'll try to be responding as I can. Uh, it's at Buck Sexton if you're on Twitter. And uh, also on Facebook, you can send me thoughts there anytime you want. Uh, we also are posting stories there throughout the day at facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. And uh, BuckSexton.com has got gear up. Don't forget, BuckSexton.com slash store. We've got all kinds of cool stuff there. We've got hats, T-shirts, mugs are coming. Those are, they're going to be amazing. You're going to love those mugs. They're going to hold only the finest, only the finest products.
like Black Rifle Coffee Company, for example. I'm just saying, all right, now I'm really promoting everything. Okay, team, we'll be back in a few. Stay with me. Women's March stand for? It's a question that we've uh, asked here before on the show, and I suppose we have something of an answer to that, uh, or at least a partial answer, when they tweet out from their official account, Twitter causing so many problems for uh, organizations these days, tweet out from their official account, remember, this is the Women's March, which did that whole anti-Trump Women's March in D.C., and they have the profane pink hats and all that stuff, Uh, but they tweeted out, happy birthday to the revolutionary Asata Shakur, uh, today's sign of resistance is in Asada's honor. Now, some of you, well, some of you already know all about this, but some of you may be thinking, wait, who is Asada Shakur? Well, her, her name originally was Joanne Chesimard, and she's been on the FBI's most wanted list for decades for being a cop killer. She was part of an organization called the Black Liberation Army, and back in 1973, with a couple of accomplices, she had been stopped on the uh, New Jersey Turnpike by New Jersey state troopers. And with her accomplices, she uh, opened fire on them. One trooper was wounded. The other was killed execution style at point blank range. She was sentenced to life in prison for that crime. She escaped prison. And fled to Cuba, which in yet another one of the Cuban government's uh, petty but very annoying slaps in the face of the United States government, granted her political asylum, where she has been since. And so you have the Women's March uh, tweeting out a happy birthday and a sign of respect and reverence for a cop killer who fled justice in this country. And some other individuals, not going to name them here, but other media people are saying, oh, well, I still don't believe that she was guilty. Oh, okay. So now we have convicted cop killers and we get to the media position for some people can be, well, that, you know, that wasn't really a trial or whatever. But then it gets even, it goes to a level beyond this because sure, the Women's March gets into some, gets into some, uh, well, people take umbrage at this, understandably so. And Jake Tapper, uh, Jake Tapper wants to know why this is uh, okay, why the Women's March would do this. And in response, yes, Linda Sarsour, remember I told you you would talk about Asada Shakur and, and, uh, and Linda Sarsour. Linda Sarsour, the uh, activist, pro-Sharia Islamist who is now getting way too much attention in the media, but she's out there. Because of uh, Jake Tapper expressing his concern for a very obviously stupid and uh, reckless tweet from the Women's March Twitter account, Jake Tapper, who always gets a lot of credit for sometimes asking a very obvious and straightforward question as a journalist, but he's not a complete left-wing loon, and so people are are like, oh, Jake Tapper is America's conscience on TV. I'm like, I mean, that guy's okay, but I don't don't think we've taken that. I remember when he worked for ABC, he would ask Obama an actual policy question, but that separated him from the rest of the West Wing uh, reporters who were just like, President Obama... What's it like to be just so much smarter and more wonderful than everybody else? Can, can you address that question in several parts? And we have all the time you need, sir. 
that was the the press with Obama. And then Jake Tapper would say, well, I mean, you kind of like said, you know, if you like your plan, you can keep it. Isn't that like maybe not what happened? And oh, Jake Tapper speaking truth to power. I mean, you know, there's a lot of that, right? I mean, it's at ABC he asked a few real questions and now he's like a multi-multi-millionaire over at CNN with his own show and treated like he's been on the front lines of uh, front lines of our democracy and journalism and the you know all that stuff anyway um so but so he says okay maybe the women's march shouldn't be supporting a cop killer and linda sarsour asada shakur and linda sarsour then goes out there and accuses him of being a white nationalist uh and said that he is a member of the alt-right she says welcome to the party Please share evidence of ugly sentiments. Unapologetically Muslim, unapologetically Palestinian, pro-immigrant, she wrote. Tapper responded by pointing out, uh, this from the Daily Caller, that Sarsour had once said that uh, activist Ayan Hirsi Ali uh, shouldn't have her lady lady area. It It should be taken away from her. Which is a, an incredibly horrific thing to say to a woman who has written about and very public about suffering from uh, female genital mutilation, FGM. Um, but that's that's the kind of person that Sarsour is. Uh, she will mock and specifically mock that area when someone is a victim of female genital mutilation. Uh, so Tapper, okay, look, I give credit where it's due. I mean, Tapper, stand, I, and I do, I mean, he's... He is standing up for, or at least expressing sanity here. But what does this tell us? I mean, you know, this, this impulse on the left to revere uh, people like Asada Shakur, a cop killer, um, and, you know, to, to revere Fidel Castro. Remember, Asada Shakur went to Cuba where she was able to get asylum. To revere uh, Ernesto Che Guevara, Che being like, dude. So many, so many people I know who are big Che Guevara fans don't even know that that's not his name. Like all the people I know who are communists who have no idea that Stalin's name wasn't actually Stalin. Stalin means man of steel. Um, and they certainly don't know that Stalin's name when he was uh, part of the Bolshevik underground was Koba. And Koba, for those of you who are fans of the Planet of the Apes, franchise is the name of the hardline totalitarian anti-human ape in that coba uh which i'm sure is not an accident right so anyway but you know people don't you know the, the, on the left you don't have to know stuff man it's all about emotions and feeling it's like you like how does it feel to say this thing does it make me feel like i'm good and i'm like you know revolution i'm a radical man uh, you you have to know things if you're going to make the intellectual arguments here, if you're going to make the arguments about history, and if you're going to be rooted in reality. But if you just want to engage in virtue signaling and pound your chest and think yourself a brave social justice warrior, yeah, tweet out something about Asada Shakur and see where that gets you. And then if you're Linda Sarsour, get even more attention for yourself by uh, attacking someone for pointing out that Asada Shakur support is not something that anybody on the left should do. In fact, progressives should denounce it, but very few of them will. You'll you'll notice this. You know, we've we've heard so much in conservative circles about the alt-right for a long time now. You you where progressives with denouncing the insanity in their in their ranks is so quiet. So little of that. 
In fact, I think they're all scared that they're the next ones that are going to be denounced themselves for not being progressive enough. Let's talk about civil asset forfeiture coming up. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. Let's be honest, team. Conservatism doesn't feel quite as fashionable on the right as it uh, had in the past, in recent years. The right is now firmly ensconced in the Trump movement and in Trumpism, and that doesn't mean you can't be a conservative and support Trump's agenda. I certainly am and do, but conservative principles are sometimes, many of you would probably say a lot of the time, getting lost in the shuffle here. And the political needs of today are sometimes overriding what we know to be the long-term political philosophical goals of uh, the future. So that's where we get into, for example, for me, a problem with this administration on something that is indicative of many of the biggest problems with government in general in this country. And that's civil asset forfeiture, an issue that I've been looking at now for uh, for years. Jeff Sessions, the attorney general, who, as an aside, by the way, uh, New York Times reporting today, so take it or leave it, uh, that Trump is upset with Sessions for recusing himself in the Russia probe. I I, I actually agree with him there. I, I've been consistent all along. I don't think Sessions should have recused himself. I don't think they should have uh, pushed or allowed for a special counsel. I, I'm... Mm-mm. This, this, this isn't all. It's just going to be problems, everybody. You get no points for fair play when you're dealing with Democrats. So no po- no points for good faith is actually a better way of putting it. No points for good faith. Um, Loretta Lynch didn't recuse herself, everybody, from Hillary. You know, I don't know what else to say. They, Democrats play to win. Republicans uh, on our side, we got a lot of people like, well, I don't know what the rules are. Okay, but... You know, you're telling us what the rules are where Democrats are grabbing us by our feet, turning us upside down and emptying out our pockets on the, you know, on the playground, you know, but the rules don't punch it back. I mean, oh, excuse me. You know, sometimes you gotta, you gotta deal with the rough housing with a little bit of your own rough stuff, but nope, I know, I know. I say that on the one hand and yet here I am telling you that we need to focus in on, on the principles of, uh, due process and rule of law and limited government when it comes to civil asset forfeiture. And I think the administration, uh, and I don't know how much, it, I'm assuming this is mostly Jeff Sessions. Uh, I don't know how much Trump weighs in on this one way or the other, although he has been, at least rhetorically speaking, a very uh, law and order guy. But you got Jeff Sessions giving a press conference today in which he's talking about civil asset forfeiture and how they're going to tighten it up, strengthen it, go for it. I shouldn't say tighten it up. They're going to expand it. They want to do more of this. They think this is a very important tool. Here, I'll let you hear from the Attorney General himself. As any of these law enforcement partners will tell you, and as President Trump knows well, civil asset forfeiture is a key tool uh, that helps law enforcement defund organized crime, takes back ill-gotten gains from them, and prevent new crimes from being uh, committed and weakens the criminals and their cartels. It weakens the criminal organizations when you take their money, and it strengthens uh, law enforcement when we can share it together and use it to further our effort against crime. 
Even more importantly, it helps return property to victims of crime. Civil asset forfeiture takes the material support of the criminals and instead makes it material support for law enforcement. All right. Funding priorities like... I'm sorry, go continue with that for a second. Proof vests, opioid overdose uh, reversal kits, and better training are all paid for by asset forfeitures. In departments across this country, uh, funds that were once used to take lives are now being used to save lives. Okay, all right. So that all sounds really good, right? Uh, Jeff Sessions is like, look, we're it's it's one, two, three. We're going to hurt the cartels. And, the, you know, it focuses on drug trafficking here. We're going to hurt the cartels. We're going to help victims by returning cash to them, which, I mean, in the case of cartels, I don't think that's really applicable. Uh, at least I can't think of how it's applicable. And then also, and oh, by the way, we're going to save cops' lives because we're going to give more money to police departments for essential programs. It all sounds good. I, I understand that, right? And that that's why, and there's these are all real arguments. These are all things you can check off, and it's there's some truth to all of them, or they're true in part. I'm not saying there's any dishonesty here, but they're only true in part because they're not addressing the concerns with civil asset forfeiture, which for those of you who are wondering, well, Buck, is this even a big deal? It's a, it's actually a pretty big deal. And it also sets a very troubling precedent for the federal government for law enforcement, which is the most troubling manifestation. Law enforcement overreach and law enforcement abuse is the most troubling overreach that the government can engage in because it's the one, you know, that can use literal force against you as a citizen. So we need to be on. We need to be very careful about this. Uh, the Justice Department has taken in twenty-eight billion dollars over the last decade. I see here, according to the uh, Washington Post, and civil asset forfeiture seizures in this country in twenty fifteen surpassed the losses from all burglaries across the country, according to the Atlantic. So we are talking about over time billions and billions of dollars here that are taken, and now. This is the biggest problem with this. Although there's a, there's a, a second there, there's a, a second component that I want to get into. The biggest problem is on the due process side. Civil asset forfeiture is law enforcement agencies taking money or property, taking the proceeds of alleged crimes. They have proven nothing in these cases in terms of criminal activity. Nothing has been proven. No criminal charges are uh, have been leveled in these in these cases in some cases no criminal charges are put out there no one is indicted and yet property is taken how is that not an unlawful taking how can you claim that there is such a thing as due process when the government can say we think that that bag of cash you have in your car comes from a drug deal so we're just going to take that from you thanks very much and you can go to court and try to prove that it didn't come from a drug deal Good luck with that. That is what civil asset forfeiture is. That's also sometimes how it functions. That should be very troubling to you. There's there's nothing about this that smells right. There's nothing about this that's that should sit well with you. And I know I heard Jeff Sessions making the case. And look, I'm I'm I have law enforcement in my family. I worked in law enforcement for a short time. I'm as pro law enforcement as anybody can reasonably be. Okay, but this is about law enforcement policy. I'm not blaming. The men and women in law enforcement across the country, I'm blaming the Justice Department and the top level of it for implementing policies, putting down guidance like this that is troubling. 
that is really a, a violation of due process. This is a constitutional issue, my friends. This is not, this should not be happening. And then there's another part of this, too. I am troubled by any law enforcement efforts where there's an incentive to take private property for the use of law enforcement. And what happens here, and this is this is also not, not good, what happens is that there are state limitations on what, like, a state trooper or state police can take and use for their own purposes, but the federal government has workarounds. They have a they have sharing in place for civil asset seizures. That means that if you're now in state law enforcement or local law enforcement and you seize assets, and then you know you do it through this federal program, the federal government kind of kicks it back to the local level, and this is used to buy you know armored personnel carrier kind of stuff for i know that's not it's not actually an apc but you know uh you use it to buy very advanced uh equipment for law for agencies that uh, local police departments that may or may not really need that um but it incentivizes cops to take stuff from people without having to prove a crime for the benefit of those of those law enforcement agencies that is also a very troubling precedent and you know conservatives i'm sorry there's there's only and some of you are going to say buck come on health care immigration national there's there's bigger stuff i get it right i mean look we're in the third hour of the show we've already covered a lot of ground today but this is i think a an issue of of symbolism of the broader conversation as well the government needs to have clearly defined rules for taking your property and the government cannot take your property because it says you're a criminal without proving you're a criminal. This is very straightforward. This should not this should not be up for debate or discussion. And that Jeff Sessions, as attorney general, is rolling back some of what the Obama administration did here, which I actually think was moving in the right direction on this. I know people are going to you can you know, you can throw tomatoes at me for saying it, but it's true that Jeff Sessions is doing this, I think it's wrong. I think it's. Uh, I think the principle here is being violated, and I think that this is not conservative. And so I, I respectfully but strongly dissent from the administration on the civil asset forfeiture issue. We got Matt Walsh and also Fred Flights coming up here. Uh, stay with me, team. All right, everybody, it's time for some national security analysis, and we have our friend Fred Flights on the line to help us through that. He is a senior vice president at the Center for Security Policy. He's also a former CIA analyst and a former chief of staff to Ambassador John Bolton. Mr. Flights, great to have you back. Great to be here, Buck. Uh, so you wrote on National Review, Iran is not complying with the nuclear deal. And, of course, people listening, because I talked about it yesterday on the show, might think, well, hold on a second. The Trump administration just recertified officially the deal, but said that they're not complying in spirit. Make sense of all this for us. Are they complying? Are they not complying? Is it somewhere in between? Tell us what's going on. Uh, they're not complying, and it's it's not a... Uh... It, it, it's not a pretty picture. On Monday, uh, uh, Trump's senior advisors had a package of proposals to declare for the second time that Iran is complying and that the agreement is in the national security interest of the United States, both claims of which I may say are absolutely false. But to sort of cover up that by implementing new sanctions against Iran. Now, I've written about this. Ambassador Bolton's written about this. Three U.S. senators uh, uh, Cotton, Cruz, and Purdue wrote a very persuasive letter on very blatant areas where Iran is violating the agreement. And nevertheless, the administration decided to declare 
that it's in compliance. And the reason is that Secretary Mattis, Secretary Tillerson, and, and, and uh, National Security Advisor McMaster uh, do not want to get out of the agreement because it will anger the Europeans and because uh, they, they, they don't have an alternative. But i got to tell you, that is not where the president is. He was not happy about this. Fred, uh, why would they why would they certify it, given the circumstances? Is this just buying more time to create the political room, the political consensus necessary in order to finally say that Iran is in noncompliance and take action? Or, you know, what what's the strategy involved here? Well, the foreign policy establishment doesn't want to get out of this agreement. They never want to get out of agreements. And they're claiming that, look, it's an international agreement. Uh, we've given our word. We can't reimplement sanctions. It'll upset the Europeans. I, I question whether this is a true multilateral agreement. It was really just between us and Iran. The other states joined later. We can impose meaningful new sanctions by banning uh, nuclear and missile technology transfers. Um, but I, I think what we have to really look at is that this agreement is strongly opposed by the Gulf states and by Israel because it was imposed on them. They had no say in it. We should put together a new, new anti-Iran alliance that looks at all the threats Iran poses and include in the negotiations the Gulf states and Israel. You know, when Clinton had a nuclear deal with North Korea, Japan and South Korea were at the negotiating table. Why was Israel not involved in this negotiation that affects its very existence? One of my concerns about this deal, and for everyone listening, we're speaking to uh, Fred Flights, who's senior vice president at the Center for Security Policy. Uh, Fred, one of the concerns that I've had is that Iranian compliance at this stage in many ways, is in their interest, at least with either egregious violations where they would give plenty of room for the U.S. and others to say, hold on a second, that's not really in their interest because the the goodies, the benefits, are front-loaded for Iran. So it's, it seems to me like it's going to be a while before we get to a point where the Iranians even have much of an incentive to violate the agreement in, in major ways. So is the, is the game plan for the Trump administration, you think, to wait for that? Or what are they going to do in the meantime? Well, I think the violations are pretty significant. Uh, Iran is not letting the IAEA uh, inspect military sites. It's a major violation. That's where nuclear weapons work is taking place if it's occurring. It's produced too much heavy water. It's produced too much enriched uranium. Uh, But uh, even more significant, this agreement allows Iran to pursue nuclear technologies. It can enrich uranium while the deal's in effect. It can build uh, and operate a heavy water reactor while the deal's in effect. So Iran is moving towards a nuclear reactor, a nuclear weapon, even if it fully complies. But but that's kind of what I mean. Compliance isn't even that painful for Iran. That's right. So basically, we can't certify this as in the national security interest of the United States. There is a policy review underway, and I've talked with a number of people, including Ambassador John Bolton. We don't think the president's going to certify again. I think he did it this time very reluctantly. Uh, but frankly, Buck, people like you and me and others, we need to keep the pressure up. What do you think, by the way, will happen if the next time that it's up for certification, if, if, if certification is denied by the administration, what goes on then? So for everyone listening, for everyone wants to know, okay, so what would happen? Tell us. Well, I mean, supporters of the bill are saying, well, Iran's behavior will get worse. Europe will be mad at us. Iran's behavior already got worse since the agreement was announced. Basically, Iran's behavior will get even worse. Is that the standard? that we should be judging why we should stay in the agreement, Europe will be mad. Of course they will. 
But I think we would have to send Tillerson and other people to Europe and to the Middle East and say, look, we're moving in another direction, a better direction that also looks at missiles and sponsorship of terror, meddling in regional disputes. And this other agreement simply is null and void. And on the issue of Afghanistan, by the way, that's another place where there's been a security review that's been talked about. It is underway. Fred, I, I have major concerns. Uh, that's an, it's an issue that I've been following and, and worked on uh, back in the day. I've been looking at it very closely for years and years. I, I know that there's supposed to be a new strategy and no one could be there's no one that can think of who's a better place to come up with a new approach than General Mattis, but I'm not sure there is a strategy that will change things in Afghanistan. I want to know what your take is. When we look at Afghanistan and Syria and North Korea, there are major disasters that are hard to solve because the Obama administration was so incredibly incompetent. And I think this is really true in Afghanistan. Fortunately, he didn't pull out all the troops because his military advisor said, you know what happened in Iraq when you did that. But uh, the situation in Afghanistan has seriously deteriorated. Uh, ISIS has, has a foothold and is staging spectacular terrorist attacks. I don't know the solution there. There is talk that we might send in contractors to fight the war on the cheap. I don't, I don't have the credentials to assess whether that's a good idea or not. I don't know how the, the Afghans will respond to that. And I'm with you. I don't know what the strategy is going to be. Yeah, because I've I've heard what the the supposedly new versions are so, are supposed to be, and I've been around this game long enough to know that those were the same solutions and ideas from uh, years ago, many years ago in some cases, maybe even a decade ago, depending on what specifically we're talking about. Uh, one more for you, Fred, before we let you go. North Korea getting a lot of attention in the early months of this administration. Another place you mentioned a disaster because in part of the. Uh, inertia, if we want to be kind, I guess, of the Obama administration, strategic patience, which is a fancy way of saying not doing very much and not having any new ideas. Uh, what should be done with North Korea, given the continued uh, hostile acts of missile testing and saying they're going to you know, engulf us all in a big wave of fire? I think when nations threaten to attack you with nuclear weapons and they have an aggressive and rapidly growing nuclear missile uh, uh, program, you should take it seriously. I'm worried we're in a trajectory. You need to take aggressive action now. We need to implement the kind of sanctions China has been vetoing for years, such as stopping North Korean ships at sea, uh, cutting off all access to finance. We need to do these outside of the UN, put together another alliance, something called the Proliferation Security Initiative already exists. It could be used to do this. We should be shooting down North Korean missiles that leave North Korean territory increase our our nuclear presence in the region as well as missile defenses, make China's support of North Korea painful so it has an incentive to twist North Korea's arm. I don't like the idea of attacking North Korea. I hope it's never necessary, but there's a lot we can do to twist the arms of both North Korea and China. Fred Flights uh, is a senior vice president at the Center for Security Policy, former CI analyst like me. Uh, great to have you on, Fred. Where should people go to read your latest? Uh, please, please go to our website, securefreedom.org. You can read my piece there and other materials by the Center for Security Policy. Fred, thanks so much. Great to have you come back soon. Good to be here. Team, we're going to be joined by our buddy Matt Walsh in just a few minutes. He's going to talk to us about things you got to do to be a man. Matt Walsh style. I like it. And also we'll talk about a story from Saudi Arabia that the press hasn't been spending much time on. That and more coming up. Buck is back. 
Hey, everybody. Buck's back. It's more of America Now. Throw in your two cents. 1-844-900-BUCK. That's 1-844-900-2825. Welcome back, everybody. We've got Matt Walsh on the line now. He is the author of The Unholy Trinity, Blocking the Left's Assault on Life, Marriage, and Gender. He's also an author at The Blaze. You can read his latest at theblaze.com. Mr. Walsh, good to have you back. Thanks for having me, Buck. So, Matt, before I get into uh, two of your pieces, you're somebody who doesn't shy away from being critical of of either Trump or the GOP. Uh, what do you take from the health care mess? Just what, what's your what's your 30,000 foot view of this whole debacle? Well, I, I think it's, you know, the, the way I put it on Twitter today is we have at this point. We have to choose. There's no Republican Party that doesn't. The Republican Party doesn't exist. We have there, we have the Democrat Party of 2017, and we have the, the Democrat Party of like 2005. Those are the which is now the Republican Party. Uh, those are the, that, that's that's what we have because it, it's it's very apparent to me that you know after promising for seven years that they were going to get rid of Obamacare, it hasn't happened. Obviously, it's not going to happen. Um, and just like so many other of their supposed objectives, are not going to happen. So. This is they own this now. They own Obamacare. It's not Obamacare anymore. It's GOP care. This is this is theirs. This is their thing. And uh, and so this is what we live in in 2017. We live in a in a in a country where the supposed conservative party now owns, uh, uh, you know, universal health care, as well as, by the way, not not that anyone really cares about this, apparently, but they also own funding Planned Parenthood, which they've decided to continue doing, uh, although they can stop. So um, among many other things, this is a. Uh, yeah, by the way, what's their, I forget now, what's the excuse for why they had to fund Planned Parenthood? Uh, is, it, is it just lack, lack of, uh, of fortitude? I mean, why are, they not, why are they not withdrawing funding? They said they would. With it's, Obamacare, it's, they it's, say it's, it's reconciliation. I'm sorry, Matt. I just, you know, they, they have some procedural issue. What's the problem with Planned, Planned Parenthood defunding? For the most part, their excuse is they haven't even given an excuse. They haven't even bothered to give an excuse. They don't even talk about it. They did put – now, I, I know what the excuse is going to be, is that they put into the, 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 the health care bill that was just – that just went down in flames. They put in an amendment that would have partially defunded Planned Parenthood for 12 months. And so that was their big attempt, was to put, was to put in this partial temporary defunding of Planned Parenthood, attach it to a doomed bill, and it was an amendment that probably would have not survived anyway. But that's what they're going to say. They say, well, we tried, and uh, we can't. But so that's it. That's all there is. And so they're going to continue to fund Planned Parenthood, which, by the way, you know, it's, Planned Parenthood has been fund for 40 years now. And there have been other Republican governments that have decided to fund it. So this is just in keeping with what they've always done. Yeah, they say that they are pro-life, but then they don't defund Planned Parenthood. They say that they're going, and at least for the last seven years or so, that they would defund Obamacare and or I'm sorry, repeal Obamacare, and that well, they still could do it. Is, is there any way, Matt? You think that maybe because there's been such a uh, a, an obvious and uh, really jaw dropping failure on the part of the GOP to follow up on that promise that that maybe there will be some accountability now that 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 essentially this is just this is too much this has gone too far the sorry we're not actually going to repeal Americans are annoyed by this or no you think we'll get past it. I think, you know, I, I've been thinking that I've been, we've been all been saying that to each other for years and years and years. Every time, well, well, this time they're really going to pay this time, this time, this time. But then every time the elections come up, we always say, well, yeah, but you know, if we hold them accountable and then might put the Democrats in charge, let's just, let's just, you know, let's just get through the midterms and then we'll hold them accountable. And then midterms come, we say, okay, let's just get through the general, then we'll hold them accountable and on and on and on. This has been the process. It's going to continue this way. There's no reason to think it'll change. 
because one thing we have to keep in mind is that, you know, as the I say that the Republican Party of 2017 is like a Democrat Party of 2005, and that's true. But also the so-called conservative movement of 2017 strikes me as pretty similar to the, you know, the liberal movement of, of a decade or a decade and a half ago. So as the Republican Party goes further to the left, conservatives in general are kind of going further to the left, which is why you have some conservatives who have for, have for years have been saying, let's get, get rid of Obamacare. Now they say, well, we can't really do that. We've got to have some, we've got to have some replacement in place. So this is not happening in a vacuum is what I'm saying. Um, and that's part of the reason why the Republicans aren't held accountable is because even a lot of the so-called conservatives don't care that much about these issues. And so that's why this is all playing out that way. We're speaking to Matt Walsh. He's the author of The Unholy Trinity, Blocking the Left's Assault on Life, Marriage, and Gender, which you can all pick up on Amazon.com. He's also an author at the Matt Walsh blog. Uh, Matt, tell me about your piece, Five Things Every Guy Must Do in Order to Become a Man. Yeah, yeah, that's a a podcast I did last week. And this is, uh, you know, it's it's just one of these things we hear all the time from, from well, women and men complain that it's hard. You know, well, women, women especially, single women will say you, know, you can't find a man who's actually a man who's competent, who's mature. And I'm and, and I believe that that's true. And I'm very I'm very sympathetic to single people these days. I'm so glad that I'm not single anymore. I have to deal with this. Uh, I could not be any happier about that. So I just tried to to come up with just a few things. That if you're if you're a woman and and, uh, you know, you're, you're looking to find a man who might, you, you want to get serious with and you might want to marry. There's a few things you could kind of look back at his past and see, has he done this? Is he doing this? And if he's not, then you should kind of probably steer clear and, and be wary of that. And these are really basic things that, of course, it still upsets people when you bring it up. But basic things like. Oh, let's hear it. Man, <laughs> we got to hear him. Yeah. Like um, if you're a grown man, you should have paid some bills in your life. You should be paying all of your own bills. Uh, if, if you're a grown man, you know, you should have developed some interests outside of watching TV and playing video games. And I'm not saying that men can never play video games, although I don't, I'm not personally a fan. But you have these men that their only interests in life are video games, superheroes. It's like their interests have not evolved at all since they were eight years old. They have not changed at all. And that's a problem. You know, that's, that's an that's a, that's a indication of a lack of maturity. And I think a big one also is most men, in most cases, I think, You've got to at some point move out on your own and live by yourself for a while. I'm not talking about in a dorm room or with roommates in a college setting. But I think in modern society, it's important for men to live on their own for a little while, develop some skills of survival, you know, figure out how to take care of themselves so that then they can get married and take care of a family. And I think we have a lot of men who never develop that skill. And they get married and they don't know how to take care of their families. It causes all kinds of problems. So these are just, I think these are really basic things, but, uh, but of course, they're considered. Was was there pushback to this to this uh, podcast? Were people saying how how dare you suggest that to be a man you should have had a job, paid bills, and not just play video games? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Of course. Yes. Of course. <laughs> and and the, the the thing is, well, you know, you're being judgmental. You don't understand how hard it is, and why shouldn't I just live with my parents until I'm 27? It's the most financially responsible thing, and so on and so forth. People are just grappling for for excuses because they don't want to. You know, they don't want to take charge of their life. And this is why we have to, you know, and, and one excuse I like is people say, well, you know, back in the back in the old, back in the 1800s, uh, you know, you would stay at home with your parents until the day that you got married, and then you would move out. And, yeah, that's true, except that you are home with your parents working on a farm, getting up at 5 a.m. to milk the cows, 
and you know go out and plow the field. So you weren't you weren't just at home watching TV. <laughs> you were you were on a you were on a homestead contributing to the family operation. You weren't trying to yeah, get the high score on Mortal Kombat Five or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> it's different. Right. If so, if that's if that's what you're doing in 2017, you're working on the homestead. Then great, stay home. That's fine. But most of us aren't doing that. So we have to force this on ourselves. We have to force ourselves to go out and cut the umbilical cord and develop some skills because we're not going to do it at home. And uh, I know that that's just, you know, it's, it's, it's obviously if you could just stay home and play video games, I guess, but you don't really want to hear anyone tell you otherwise. Matt Walsh, everybody, author at The Blaze. Check out his book, The Unholy Trinity, Blocking the Left's Assault on Life, Marriage, and Gender, which is officially endorsed by uh, my mom, Mrs. Sexton. She is a fan, so there you have it. Matt Walsh, thank you. (laughs) Thanks for joining, man. Good to have you on. Appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, so, team, we are going to talk about uh, Saudi Arabia coming up here in a few moments. But also, if you don't mind, I may take just a few to uh, remind you that we have some fantastic gear up on BuckSexon.com. You go to BuckSexon.com slash store uh, on your browser, and you'll see we've got Freedom Hut t-shirts, Buckslap, which is something that we need to start using more on the show. And we are working on Shields High. We're coming up with a Shields High design. I do appreciate when people send me their own designs for it, although for me to actually print t-shirts with them, I would need like a release and there's a whole legal process, but we are working on a Shields High design for the t-shirt, so that will be coming too. Um, uh, But the story out of Saudi Arabia is interesting. I'll talk to you about that on the flip side of the break. Team, stay with me. Well, team, I've got the conclusion of a story that I didn't get to tell you about when it first broke. Uh, It's not a major international news story, but I do think it's indicative of some of the biggest problems we see in the uh, Middle East and and in the broader Muslim world. The Saudi uh, authorities in Saudi Arabia, they they had uh, arrested a woman who appeared in a video. (gasps) Get ready for it. Get ready for it. Wearing a skirt that went above the knee and a halter top. Uh, She was walking through a historic neighborhood in uh, Saudi Arabia in uh, Najid province. And she was uh, arrested. Now, she wasn't caught in this terrible act of wearing uh, a skirt. I mean, it's like 115 degrees in Riyadh, right? I mean, this is not exactly a place where you want to be forced to wear an abaya, which is what the Saudi women are forced to wear, which is a black covering from head to toe. Doesn't cover the face entirely, but has to cover the head and the uh, and uh, has to cover the hair. So she was wearing a skirt. And she was a, 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 you know, a woman of, of nice appearance, uh, a, a former uh, headmaster of mine, when he used to refer to attractive, an attractive lady would refer to her as just, uh, I think, fortunate or genetically fortunate, something like that. She's an, an attractive young woman. Uh, and she appears in this video and they arrested her. And now this is, one once again, one of these moments where, yeah, the Saudis are our allies in the war on terror, kind of. I mean, the government's an ally, but there's also been a lot of very bad stuff that has come from Saudi money. Uh, the exporting of Wahhabi Islam, which they don't like. They prefer to be called Salafist. I kind of like to call it Wahhabi because denigrating a, a strict uh, form of Islamic 
interpretation and the uh, implementation of Sharia law is something that I think I would encourage, right? Shouldn't we all encourage that? Don't we want moderate Islam and therefore extremist Islam, hardline Islam should be uh, worthy of criticism and, and even mockery? But uh, they call it Wahhabism because of the 19th century uh, preacher, uh, Ibn, uh, Ibn, Wah- Ibn Abdul Wahhab, uh, Ibn just means son of. I mean, I forget exactly. The guy had a really long name. Uh, and he made a, an agreement with the tribe, the warlord, that would become the Saudi royal family. And so there's been this unholy, but I guess technically very holy alliance, <laughs> in the sense that it's a, a religious alliance, right? But a, a, an alliance that has led to much trouble for the world between the Saudi kingdom, the, the king, the monarchy of Saudi Arabia, uh, the House of Saud, and this Wahhabist uh, theocracy. Uh, and that's how you get into the 21st century. Here we are, 2017, and a woman is wearing... Remember, she wasn't even caught by the religious police, uh, by the uh, Mutawas. Uh, she was just strolling around on a video, and it got some attention online because of the part of... Well, because she's in Saudi. Uh, and they, they had arrest, arrested her for this. Uh, This set off quite a debate. Isn't it fascinating, by the way, that there are people in Saudi who would defend the arrest of a woman for this, right? She wasn't at some holy site. This wasn't, uh, she wasn't in the Speaker of the House lobby in Congress, right? She was just walking around outside in the desert, because Saudi is a giant desert, and it's really hot. She's wearing a skirt and a crop top, uh, and the Saudi society freaked out. So, you know, you've got a lot of feminists in this country that will focus on the mythological uh, wage gap, or at least the uh, the myths behind it, right? It's not the result of sexism. It's not the result of uh, destroying women's equality. It's There are other reasons for the so-called wage gap, but no one wants to hear about them because it's more fun to just pretend that the patriarchy is holding down the advancement of women in this country. Uh, But they are surprisingly, the left in this country, the most vocal feminists that are in American society are noticeably silent on the issue of Muslim uh, Muslim treatment of women, women's rights in the Muslim world and, uh, well, oppression of women, the true oppression of women in the Muslim world. As you know, in Saudi, women can't drive cars. They need permission from male relatives to do any number of things. If you're seen with someone who's a male in public who's not a relative, you can get into trouble. There's some pushback on this. The religious police now don't have the authority to immediately detain. It used to be the case until a year ago. In Saudi Arabia, you could be detained by the by the uh, mutawas themselves by the religious police and they would cane people uh, for you know i don't know having a beer in public or ladies that were wearing a skirt that sort of thing uh, now they have to just now they're kind of like a neighborhood watch team they have to refer to the police and then the police come on scene and, and they can take action or not so i mean saudi is you could say it's crawling very slowly across the desert in the right into the right direction here it's moving very slowly into the 21st no i shouldn't say the 21st it's moving very slowly into the mid late 19th century maybe uh but we'll we'll keep an eye on this one this is our ally the saudis who by the way saudi money is involved in enormous uh banking and media properties in this country saudi influence is not something to be ignored in our own politics, uh, but perhaps that's a discussion for another day. But this woman has been released. 
the lady in the skirt is not going to face any further consequences, despite the dust-up in Saudi Arabia over this one. So uh, good news, I guess, on that front, although it does remind us all of what a regressive and bizarre place the uh, the Saudi kingdom still is. And that this exists in the heartland of Islam. You know, this is the equivalent. Remember, Saudi Arabia, the cities of Mecca and Medina, this is the equivalent in at least the Catholic faith, uh, faith of uh, the Vatican and and Rome or or Jerusalem and the origins of the faith. I mean, it depends on how you want to frame it, but uh, it's an important place, right? Saudi Arabia is an important place for Islam. Uh, Mecca and Medina are there, and yet it is a very regressive and uh, brutal and unfair and despotic place. What does that... Are we allowed to make any... Draw any conclusions from that? Are we allowed to have any, any thoughts on that beyond just, well, you know, they do things their way? Uh, I have, uh, we'll, we'll do more of a deep dive on Saudi another day, but for now, just, just take note of the fact that media here is kind of like, meh, you know, so she got arrested because she was wearing a skirt, you know, it's the Saudis, they got their thing. Uh, meanwhile, you'll still have like Elizabeth Warren giving speeches about, you know, 77 cents on the dollar or whatever, and everyone's supposed to be outraged and, oh my gosh, what do we do? The wage gap. Uh, team, do check out BuckSexton.com. We have gear up there that I would love for you to, uh, to well, I'd love you to purchase some if you don't mind. That would be great. It supports the show. We've got Freedom Hut t-shirts. We've got hats. Uh, just go check it all out for yourself. I'm sure you'll uh, really enjoy the offerings there. Commie Bear is there. We're working on Commie Bear audio for the show. That's been the hold up here, but we're going to get that done soon. Also, uh, please do, especially if you're just catching part of the show, download the podcast. Go to Buck Sexton uh, with America Now on iTunes. That's the uh, the single uh, easiest way to subscribe to the show. You can also always listen on the iHeart app anywhere where you have cell or internet connection anywhere in the country. And that's a great way to tell your friends. If you're like, hey, you should listen to this guy, Buck Saxton. He's doing a really cool radio show. Um, and if they can listen live, iHeart app is a great way to do it. We have really strong numbers on there. So, Team Buck, thank you for that. Please spread the word. Tell people to listen on the iHeart app to Buck Saxton with America now. Until tomorrow, my friends, as always, Shield Talk.